From Bramley's to Granny Smith's and Cox to Pink Ladies, there's an apple for just about every occasion. And while we weren't expecting to be talking about apples for a good few weeks, the great British weather has changed our plans. So this week, Dickie and I are on the farm planning out what to do with our apples. Look at that apple behind it, that Bramley's absolutely huge. And after seven weeks of aging, it's the moment of truth for our very own charcuterie. Will it taste like it should? You're hungry, aren't you? Yeah. Just all flavour. I mean, eating that, I just want to have a beer or a Negroni. Some Negroni in the next content. Should we get some? My name is Tommy Banks and you're listening to Seasoned, my podcast all about life at my restaurant, The Black Swan, and the farm where we grow all of our ingredients. This is the real story of the journey from field to fork. This is Seasoned, episode 19, Apples. Come on then, how many of you well-seasoned members had a go at my frangipan tart last week? Flavoured with Medisweet, which is optional if you can't find any, it was an absolute winner in my house over the weekend. I've been enjoying seeing your emails and lots of you have been revisiting some of the old episodes too. No surprise that there's been a flurry of barbecue listening with the upturn in the weather. Well Seasoned is the only place where you can get all of the bonus content as well as my monthly newsletter and entry to our exclusive giveaways. And speaking of giveaways, this is the last week to get your entry in for our grand prize. We'll be announcing the winner in our final episode of the series on August the 23rd and they'll be winning a meal and stay at the Black Swan, complete with a foraging trip with me and Dickie for good measure. Entry is just £5 a month and for more information simply visit www.tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned. And later in this episode Dickie and I start planning the itinerary for our star prize. But now... On with the show. What is it they say? An apple a day keeps the doctor away? Well, if you're living seasonally, then that probably only means good health for a few weeks of the year. British apples are one of my favourite things. Freshly picked, they're crunchy, juicy and simply delicious. They're super versatile too. We get ours in late September and they're one of the most abundant crops through the autumn and into the winter. But why we talk about apples in August? Well, I'll get to that. It all started when Dickie went for a wonder in the fruit garden. Tommy will be, uh, he's always teasing me saying that I'm grumpy when it's cloudy and cold, but I'm in my element today. It's sun's out, it's about 22 degrees. We've had a rubbish summer so far. So it feels like you get one or two days like this and then all of a sudden you forget about how, how wet it's been. Although my feet are getting pretty wet walking through this grass. The garden is just behind the Black Swan itself, a sloping field which we've crammed pretty full of row after row of neatly planted herbs, crops and fruits. But it's at the very back where the garden borders our fields of Herdwick sheep where Dickie comes to assess the fruits. So this is uh, the cherry orchard which we've got about 15 trees but there's not actually, we have real issues with Cherries, the, the birds seem to beat us to it no matter what we do. So. Along one stretch are several bushes full of one of our more unusual fruits, tayberries. These are tayberries, a cross between a blackberry and a raspberry. So they're kind of, they look like a, almost like the colour of a ripe raspberry at this point, just sort of like a blush colour. And then the first ones are just starting to ripen and look more like a, 
a blackberry. I can't see any that are actually fully ripe yet, but oh, there's one. Fruits like these are really fun to cook with. They're packed full of flavour, and to be honest, I bet lots of people have mistaken these for blackberries when they've been on their countryside walks. The only thing is just a slightly longer shape, um, slightly more elongated than you might expect from a bramble um, or a cultivated blackberry, but I think they're actually arguably got more flavour. Um, they are quite seedy though, but tasty. Probably a bit sweeter than a a wild blackberry actually. The reason Dickie is in the garden is because Chef Callum has been developing a brand new dish ready to go on the menu next week showcasing beautiful blackberries and brambles. You can almost set your watch by it but coming into that second week in August blackberries just come out of nowhere we've had a really strange kind of growing season so far this year with it being really hot and dry, then really wet and cold for like probably the last month or so. The sun's kind of come out the last week or so and the blackberries are just popping up everywhere. Sadly, we've come to the end of our strawberries now, so it just makes sense just to change it up. So we've been working on this blackberry dish for probably the last two or three days now. We've done about six different ways of doing it and we've finally got one that we're happy with. So the blackberries themselves, we macerate in sugar. What that does is it just re releases all the natural juices without having to cook them. We then make that into an ice cream base. So super fresh, blackcurrant, a little bit of sharpness and acidity about it, which is what we quite like and look for in our desserts, nothing too sweet. Then we've just got some fresh blackberries. They've just macerated as well, just in a little bit of blackberry juice, a little bit of Pedro Jimenez, which is a lovely like kind of sweet sherry as well. For a little, little bit of a boozy note, just running through it. We then just have Dickie's homemade yogurt, which has an incredible flavor to it. We've got an apple, and pine gel on there as well, just to bring a bit of freshness to the dish, and then just some fresh pine powder as well. At first dessert, for us, we really look for freshness, sharpness, and acidity, just to act as almost like a palate cleanser. You know, you go to like an old school restaurant, they always say like a little sorbet is like a palate cleanser. So it's kind of our take on that, but just a little bit more maybe refined and a bit more intricate. I tried this for the first time the other day and it's an instant winner. Rich, flavorful ice cream with the sharpness of the apple. I think our guests will love it. Callum knows all too well that it relies on there being enough blackberries to make this dish work and that's Dickie's job. But if there aren't enough, then Callum has the skills to find an alternative. So you can really quite nicely change it out with elderberry, has a lovely kind of sharp, fresh flavor about it as well. And then um, I was actually just walking around the orchard today. Our apples are really not far off now as well. So I think we could chop and change it with apple, with elderberry, with blackberries, depending on what the weather kind of throws at us. It was while Dickie was checking on the blackberries and fruits that he made a discovery. Oh, wow. So I actually didn't realise that with all this dull weather, I thought these, these would be a few weeks off. But... These are uh, Japanese wineberries that are surprisingly early. It's normally sort of middle to the end of the month before these are ready. They look a little bit like uh, raspberries, but they're really, really sweet. I almost think they've got a bit of a, you know, that sort of synthetic strawberry kind of flavor you get in a, in a chewy sweet. These are very, very seedy. So what we do with these, we make a, a wineberry shrub. So we just pick them, infuse them into white wine vinegar and sugar all equal ratios. Leave that for about six months and then I've got this bright red, really quite sharp but sweet shrub, which is amazing just with some sparkling wine um, as a pre-dinner drink. 
These Japanese wineberry are a cracker and this year we've got more than I've ever seen before. I think you feel like with berries you want, real, you want loads of sunshine, which you obviously do, but I think the, the amount of rain we've had has really kicked the berries on. Like these have burst out in the last two days and like, look at that apple behind it, that bramley is absolutely huge. And you wouldn't associate picking apples, certainly in August, like say like mid-September really, into, like, I would say October. Um, but yeah, I think just the amount of rain we've had, I mean, we had in the last week, we've had over four inches here, which is just ridiculous for August. We've got to be really reactive. I mean, like I was sort of thinking, oh, I'll not think about apples for another month, but actually, you know, that they're ready. Those Bramleys want picking and, and preserving. Bramley apples ready to be picked as early as August. This has never happened in Ulster before. In fact, it's so early that Dickie wanted to sit me down and figure out what we should do. So just having a wander around the garden uh, this morning, Tommy, um, and I feel like the wet weather we've been having has really kicked the apples, sloes, damsons on quite a lot. So like the Bramleys feel like they've swollen like 100% in like two weeks. Really? Um, to the point where like you could probably pick them in sort of mid-August, which is... Well, at least the wet weather's done something good. I must say, I'm quite excited about having apples out early and it might mean that Dickie can get ahead harvesting them because the quantities of apple that Dickie needs are massive. The thing is though, uh, Bramley apples is always, I know it's not a very fashionable apple, but it's always something that you need a lot of. Yeah, I mean, I think last year we had like 500 kilos, so hopefully we'll get somewhere near that because well, we've used a lot of it. It's a massive part of the cocktail list to start with. The wet weather though will just plump them up and swell them, won't they? I suppose, you know, every year you have different weather, but it actually ends up being good for one thing and bad for something else. And if you have that hot weather at the start of year, and then the fruit set and you get loads of rain, it might actually be a great year for apples. I think so, yeah. I don't know about you at home, but I like to mix up the type of apple depending on what I'm cooking or eating. We grow a variety called Red Spartan, which is really good. Uh, obviously, as the name suggests, bright red skin. Um, mm, and we, nice. we used that last year. We juiced them and uh, used them on breakfast. It was, that was really, really good. I just think like a, like a Cox or a Granny Smith is really good as well. We did a big apple tasting a few years ago when we had access to quite an extensive orchard and uh, there's a variety called Topaz yeah. that was the one that I thought was just like the best all-rounder. Like it was really fragrant but had like good acidity because you often find I think with apples they're either like quite sharp like a Granny Smith or you get ones like what do you get in the supermarket like a Pink Lady or something which is actually really quite fragrant but probably doesn't have, like, I think you need like a good, it's quite rare to find a good all-rounder, isn't it? A lot sort of do one, but I mean like a Cox is really good. Yeah. Like an orange pippin Cox is a good apple. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's something else as well with apples, like we get so used to having them year round in the supermarkets because we import them and yeah, we store yeah, them yeah. for such a long time. And I always think like you get to sort of April, June, April, May, June, it's like, oh, British apples and you think, if you actually think about it, you're like, they were obviously harvested in October yeah. and then stored and they're nice, but like, again, we should use them when they're banging season yeah. and they're at their best. Tart town is like my favourite thing to make. Always make them at home. What would you use Tobaz for that if you could get a hold of them, do you think? I probably would because they're firm, but like a, a Cox, an orange Pippin Cox is very, very good for a Tart town. Because yeah. you want them to hold their own, but also be incredibly soft at the same time. I wouldn't use a Granny Smith for a Tart town because they're sour and they're wetter. Because um, I think the secret to making a great tartan is you need to dry out the apples in the process. And so many times you see people turn out the tartan and just like water goes everywhere. What I do is I make my caramel, put the apples in, 
brush them with butter, and then I actually bake the apples for like half an hour. Okay. So they're properly baked and soft, and then the pastry goes on. Yeah. And that way you've dried them out, you've sort of reconcentrated the flavour of the apple, and you've dried out the apple. So when you turn it out, the only liquid is the caramel, not the water. Whereas if you just put the apples in, pastry on top, bake it, which is what most recipes call for, you end up, all the water comes out of the apples into the caramel, makes this really wet thing, you turn it out and it's just wet everywhere. Not cool. Is that one of Charlotte's recipes? Yeah, another one of Charlotte's, There yeah. you go, you see. I'm going to give well-seasoned members that full recipe for a classic tartar tan. It's a little bit more complex than you'll find in some cookbooks, but I can guarantee if you follow my recipe, you'll have a table full of very happy diners. Just don't forget to add a generous amount of cream or ice cream before you serve, or both. The garden has been a work in progress for over 10 years and on the far side, working back towards the swan, is a hedgerow full of rosehip. We call this the garden, but it's, you know, more like a field really. It was an old horse paddock when we took over this plot of land. So this is called Rosa Rigosa, which sounds pretty intense in my Geordie accent, but this basically was planted about 10 years ago and it's sort of a fully mature hedge now and through sort of mid-May to about now we pick the rose petals which literally open on a daily basis especially when it's like this and these have got a super intense uh, rose scent to them you've got to be a bit careful because the, sometimes a the bee lurking inside it's so intense unlike something like elderflower where if you snipped the whole head off when it was in flower to use for an infusion you wouldn't then get the berries with this these just fall off if they don't get picked, obviously. And then the rosehip forms behind. We use like, make like a rosehip syrup, so literally just equal weight, sugar, water, and rosehips. First, put them into hot syrup, give it a sort of overnight infusion, strain it off. And then we use that syrup to make a tomato jam for the cheese at the Abbey, which is really, really good. And then we've used it in, you know, in various cocktails and uh, we used to use it to glaze madeleines, which was quite nice. I think it was actually in World War II, maybe. There was like a bit of a sort of national drive to forage rosehips um, and make rosehip syrup because it was really good as like a sort of winter medicine, if you like, for those guys that were, were uh, fighting our corner. So. Our own bees are the secret to the success here. We've seen so much produce coming through and I'm sure that having our own hives packed with pollinators buzzing around has done wonders for all the plants. Having a garden like this is so good for the bees. I mean, you know, like the, a lot of this land around here is um, just livestock really. So like there's, there's no like oil seed being grown. So you haven't got those beautiful yellow fields. So like having for the, for the bees to, to, uh, forage from so like here having all these calendulas the marigolds the inisessup all this borage is like fantastic for the bees and it's so unique like you could put your beehives next to oilseed and you'd have a nice honey but it would have quite a generic flavor whereas this you're actually capturing like the marigold the hyssop the roses it's all that flavors in there so it's so unique to this garden when I sat down with Dickie, we got onto the topic of what we should be planting next year. It's rare that we get a moment to take stock and review everything, but I'm pleased to hear that Dickie has been hard at work planning some new additions for the farm. Me and Chris were just brainstorming the other day because you sort of think 
we're so wrapped up in it at the minute, like you say, with so much to do, but then you sort of forget bits and pieces as you get to, to sort of November, December. And we were just writing down a few bits to, to go through and we we're saying like, you know, we need to probably refill that middle tunnel with more verbena because we just have a massive demand for it. We need to probably grow twice as much chicory root next year, you know, because like with the Abbey being as busy mm. as it is, we're just going to need to do more. We want to establish elders, damsons, more Bramleys on the farm where the new fencing is for the livestock. Yeah. Stuff like that, you know, like we're always looking at, at new things. Um, yeah, saying like, let's grow, grow like a, a field scale uh, bed of broad beans, harvest them, dry them and make our own miso from that. So like yeah. we're, we're bringing that even more in house than it already is. I think that excites me. So obviously we've gone on this regenerative agriculture mission and we've put down mob grazing, we've divided up the fields like they would have been 50, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. But obviously that's all fenced. And I think the idea of establishing the hedgerows again will be great for biodiversity, but also if we can establish them with crops that we want, like you say, like it's elderflowers, it's it's damsons and slows, it's it's plum trees, it's it's different bushes of whatever it might be, blackthorns and hawthorns and yeah, yeah. all these things, like wild roses, whatever then it'd be amazing if we can we can build that so we, we get the biodiversity back it really helps nature but at the same time it's quite planned so you know that oh, i walk down that stretch of hedgerow and i can forage x amount of y exactly yeah no i'm, I'm really excited for that i think that'll be that'll be really really cool i'm glad he's not suggesting pineapples or coconuts but knowing dicky if he planted them we'd probably get them to grow but in actual fact, our exotic plants have had a really good summer, which is a tad surprising. In one of the polytunnels, we've got an amazing crop of melons. So this polytunnel is the, the propagation tunnel, which we talked about a lot in series one, because everything starts life in here. So when we came in here in like March, there was this endless cellular trays of all the brassicas and courgettes and things like that in them. But then this time of year, like it's actually normally a little bit too hot for a lot of things in polytunnels so all of those things are out now planted out in the fields and we just use it for a bit of fun really so there's uh there's all these melons which are strung up and they are, they do look really cool i'm a little i'm not actually really into melons and like i don't really like the flavor of them but it's kind of fun to to grow them so these are like midget melons, um, is, that's their actual name, Minnesota midget melons. I think they'd be nice to use for breakfast, the melons, but I think Will at Roots has always had this idea of doing like a melon sorbet or something with them. But I just don't like the flavour of melons. I don't tell my dad that because he's really proud of these. Um, and out in the herb tunnel, Dickie found the beginnings of a chocolate pepper crop. So these are chocolate peppers. So these are just starting to form the flower buds. So they're like going to come out of there. In fact, there's a tiny one there, look. So that, that, that will be a pepper at some point. They're like your sort of sweet um, bell pepper, basically. And they'll, uh, once they, they're sort of obviously green and then as they ripen, they turn like a deep chocolate color. Very similar in flavor to that, but just a bit of a point of difference, really. And we'll, we always ferment the chocolate peppers. And then with those, we'll use the juice to make like a glaze or something, sort of reduce it down. And then the sort of pulp that's left again, we'll use as a separate product. So we'll probably, we did it in the past, like a fire pit lamb. And we, the marinade, we did it in for like two days, was uh, that chocolate pepper pulp, which was super tasty. 
It's a testament to the hard work of the farm team that we can get produce like this to grow. And I hope it's some encouragement for all you amateur growers at home too. We're all just experimenting, trying things out and seeing what works. But with a bit of patience, you can grow almost anything. Now, Dickie and I have been talking about our well-seasoned competition for weeks. Remember, one lucky winner will be our special guest up at the Black Swan. Not only joining us for an incredible meal and stay, but also coming out with Dickie and I for a tour and a forage. But we need to put flesh on the bones of that plan, so we decided to get our heads together. Having the competition winner up will be fun, actually, because we've never really done that before. Um, I think... Well, the reasons for doing the podcast in the first place is to tell the stories that are behind the scenes that are difficult to sort of get across when you're having a meal. Yeah. But this is a, going to a whole new level because you've basically got all day to hang out. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's class. So like, maybe like arrive at 11, we'll have a coffee at the Black Swan, come down to the farm, show you around the preserves and what we do down here and then get out foraging and then come back for a bite to eat, a bit of a farm to fork lunch and then uh, hopefully, go up for go away with a few uh, preserves for to have at home, and then dinner at the Black Swan afterwards, which will be mega. So we've got a morning meeting at the farm, a tour of the animal sheds, and a sneak peek inside the Palace of Preserves. Then we'll go foraging in the garden and maybe out to one of the local woodlands nearby. Then Dicky has promised to cook up some lunch, which will hopefully be a modest portion size. You're going to make us some lunch? Oh yeah. Bit of grass-fed beef, some nice veg. Couple of fried eggs. Got the fried eggs, got the abbey for a soft serve. And then there's time for a lazy afternoon, enjoying the surroundings before tucking into our tasting menu. Honestly, I quite like to enter myself. If anything, just to get Dickie to cook my lunch. For your chance to win, you've got just days to enter. We'll pick out the winner on August the 22nd and reveal all in next week's episode. Entry is just £5, and for all the information, visit www.tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned. One product which lots of you will be pulling out the ground right now is carrots. They're available all year round in supermarkets, but right now they're bang in season and tasting their absolute best. My team had a few ideas of how to make your carrots sing. Favourite root vegetable, absolutely love them. Just raw, <laughs> generally raw, peeled or not peeled. Mud on them, not bothered. <laughs> Maybe chop them up into a mirepoix and put them in a bolognese or something like that. I do like carrots. You make a carrot sorbet, absolutely unbelievable. I've, I must say, I'd never tried it before. It goes, it goes with that tira, tiramisu with carrot sorbet. Unreal, best way. What would I do with carrots? Recently in the kitchen, we've been trying the fermented carrots, which is a completely different flavor to me with a pickle sort of flavor. And I love pickles as well. The first thing that popped into my head was soup, which is a really <laughs> weird answer. I, I love a carrot and parsnip soup. If you're thinking about this, then you've got to go Christmas carrots, haven't you? But the Christmas carrots is a full bar of butter, loads of sugar, not healthy in the slightest, but so it's unreal. Christmas carrots, yeah, because you can only have them at Christmas. You can't go overboard with Christmas carrots. <laughs> yeah, that's the first time I've heard anyone talk about Christmas carrots, especially in August. But I reckon there's loads of different things you can do. 
So here's my tips from preparation to some ingenious ways to cook them and serve them. I think people usually think of carrots as a winter vegetable and well effectively they are because you can store them right through the winter. But I think the best time to eat carrots is actually in the middle of summer when they're super fresh. I love them when they're really small like this. The tops have already been taken off this one. We actually use the tops. If you can buy small carrots with tops, definitely do that because we take the tops, we make a beautiful pesto, which we use down at the Abbey Inn. Um, make it like a normal pesto, but use the carrot tops. And it's really sort of earthy and fragrant. And these little carrots are perfect, just roasted or beautiful little crudités. And then with the bigger carrots, you tend to have a bit more sweetness. You get a lot more sugar in them and they're great for dessert. So carrot cake's an obvious one. I like to juice them and carrot juice is really sweet and you can reduce that and make caramels out of it or even make sorbets if you're feeling that way out. So I think they're great in desserts because of the sweetness of them, but also in salads and things like this purple carrot. I mean, it just looks great. I think if you roast that, it's going to be beautiful. It will whizzen right up. Lots of animal fat, butter, um, duck fat, something like that would be great. Um, or you can give them a little blanch and finish them on the barbecue. I think the more you treat these like a piece of protein, like a piece of meat, the more flavour you're going to get into them. Don't boil carrots. In general, don't boil any vegetables. You're just losing all of the beautiful flavour to the water. And actually, if you cook these by roasting them or even just very thinly slicing them and dressing them in a bit of oil and vinegar, you're keeping all that natural flavour or even concentrating it. And I think that's so key. You can make a beautiful salad out of pickled carrots, raw carrots, a few roasted carrots. Maybe you make a little dressing out of the tops. You can make something really beautiful without having to boil those carrots. If I was making a roast dinner, how to cook my carrots, I think there's two great options. One, just simply roast them all the way in some fat of whatever you're cooking. So if it's roast pork or roast beef or roast lamb, maybe get some of the fat off there and put them in or use it as a trivet. If you slice them up and put them underneath the meat, then they'll just naturally roast, get full of flavour and then just serve them as they are. It's the most delicious carrot you're ever going to eat. The second thing you can do with carrots on your roast dinner, if you don't want to roast them, is if you peel them and batten them, rather than cooking in boiling salted water, you could cook them down in some chicken stock, a good knob of butter in there, reduce it down so it gets real glazy. And then traditionally people put orange juice in there as well, which is, I think it's a bit weird, but a knob of honey would be perfect. And maybe just finish with a few finely chopped chives as well. Perfect. Now, regular listeners will recall that in Series 1, we spent a lot of time talking about pigs. In fact, pork has been a regular feature throughout the year. We kept our own mangalitsa pigs on the farm, and they're featured on the menu for the very first time. We've also got some other rare breeds too, and the amazing thing about pigs is they deliver you so much. You get all your prime cuts, like your chops, but we also make some incredible sausages. The cheeks often go on the menu and the bellies for Sunday lunch. There's just so much. And one of the processes we wanted to start doing was making our own charcuterie. So when we opened the Abbey Inn, I bought a rather large and very fancy charcuterie cabinet. Guests of the Abbey will have seen it in the back of the restaurant where we have a range of meats hang in to slowly age and dry. It's quite a sight. We expected the process to take three months. As the meat ages, it loses moisture and drops in weight. And only when it's dropped enough weight is it ready. Well, just seven weeks after we started, our hanging cuts of pork have shrunk down in size. And it seems they're ready. That's five weeks earlier than we thought. Either we've done something wrong or this machine is an absolute beast. The only way to tell is a good old taste test. So obviously we uh, 
we've got the uh, charcuterie cabinet at the Abbey Inn and the idea was we do whole mussels in there so what we do is we take things like the copper which is, uh, is basically where the loin extends into the shoulder of a, of a pig, it's a nice round mussel, cure it in salt and then we hang it in the charcuterie cabinet until it's lost, what about 30% in weight? Yeah I think so. And then, and then we've got the finished sort of product so it looks great. It does look good. Colour's mega isn't it? Yeah real dark. I'll pop a picture online, but what we're looking at is a copper. A copper is a cut of pork from the shoulder, which is actually sort of the extension of the loin. So it's beautiful, round, like a big long barrel, but the meat's a bit darker than you find in where you'd find your pork chops, for instance. It's beautifully marbled with fat. And as Dickie starts slicing off thin layers, it's looking right. I just hope it tastes good. Mm. So good. Pure flavour. It's great. For a moment, something quite rare happened, and Dickie and I were speechless. It's a really nice texture because I think with things like this, you can easily make them too dry, mm -hmm. and then you've almost got this sort of jerky-like, and I find that a lot of people's sort of homemade versions of this can be quite dry. Yeah. You're hungry, aren't you? Yeah. Just all flavor. I mean, these are really good, but I do think that, um, we should introduce some flavour. Do you think the cure's right? They are. I mean, I like it. It's on the high side, though, the salt content. I often talk about flavour because it drives everything that we do. And this copper is absolutely full of it. It's rich, it's so intense, and it properly tastes of pork, which, you know, pork doesn't always taste of pork, but I think the life of these pigs makes a massive difference. Great. Well, that's not even got any. That's literally just the salt cure. There's no. No, but it's the flavour of the um, the fat, which I like. It's nutty. I think when you get a good charcuterie, the fat is the most exciting thing. That's yeah. what charcuterie is all about. Mm -hmm. I think when it has that sort of almost nutty edge to it, it's just fantastic. We've played around with the flavours on the coppers, including one flavoured with wild garlic and another with chilli, but I'm keen to taste the one that we covered in Douglas fir needles. So this is this one's um, cured in Douglas fir, so we're quite famous for Douglas fir due to the man that stood right next to me. So we've done used Douglas fir in loads of different things, um, mainly in like pastry work, haven't we? Previously, um, but it's got this real like um, citrus. The, no the, the needles have got this real like citrusy, almost grapefruit sort of vibe to them. So with this, we just literally blended, weighed out the salt cure and then blended 1% fur into the cure. Gave it the same amount of time. Um, and it is coming through, but it's not too strong, is it? No, but it's there. It's just, it's, it's nice. nice. I don't think I'd really want it to be over, the, I think it wants to be a background. You want to taste, first and foremost, you want to taste pork and the quality of the pork and the fat. But if there's a nice little bit of seasoning around the outside, then I think that just adds to it. Yeah. I mean, eating that, I just want to have a beer or a Negroni. Some the growing in your next content then. Should we get some? Yeah. 128, that's fine. It's continental uh, lifestyle. Making our own charcuterie is a long process, starting with the pigs themselves. So it's such a relief to know that all the hard work, time and money that's gone into making our own charcuterie has paid off. And there's loads of places where this product can feature on our menus. So I think the beauty of the copper is we can use this quite a lot and we get a lot of portions out of a pig because you can slice it so thin. So we have a charcuterie board on at the Abbey Inn which is very popular. We serve 
first thing when you arrive at Roots, you get some charcuterie from our pigs as well. So there's the first two places. Black Swan, we serve it for breakfast. So there's a lot of places we can use this. That's almost it for this season of Seasoned. Next week, we'll recap what's gone on across the summer and I'll look ahead to what the autumn months have in store. And, as if you could forget, we'll pick out our winner for the August giveaway. Thanks so much for listening. See you soon. Don't forget... If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can get in touch with the show. Just email seasoned at tommybanks.co.uk.